You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to podcast on all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a longtime Marlins writer, as well as the founder of JustBaseball.com. And in today's episode, we're going to talk some more deadline as we're just about three days away here from the cutoff. The Marlins have not really made any moves of note yet. But the market has been slow to develop. I still think it's going to be a very, very fun deadline. And I think it's going to be up till the last few minutes there. So expect a lot to happen between the time this episode is published and Friday's deadline. So more to talk about there and also some deals that set the bar pretty high for the Marlins if they decide to trade some of their pieces. Also, we'll look at the ball games ahead as the Marlins were able to actually split that series with the Padres, which was pretty impressive given the circumstances. Braxton Garrett was fantastic. Going to talk a little bit about how he was able to strike 10 guys out. A little bit of a generous strike zone, but it was a great showing from him. How can he continue to build on that? Or was it a flash in the pan? And then a look at Baseball America's update to the Marlins top 30 list, including the recent draft class. It's really interesting. I don't really agree with all of it, but it is fascinating to see where Baseball America slid some of the players up and down in this Marlins system. So I'm going to talk about that and why they may have made some of those moves and where I have some disagreement with that overall top 30 from Baseball America. But let's start with a little bit of trade deadline talk and maybe not the names that you would expect me to open with, but I want to talk about Richard Blyer and what he'll be able to possibly bring in for the Marlins. And the reason why I want to talk about Blyer is because Andrew Chafin, the left-handed reliever from the Cubs, was just dealt over to the Athletics in a deal that included Greg Diekman along with right-handed pitching prospect Daniel Palencia, which is actually a pretty good return. And obviously where those prospects rank in their system is all relative because the Marlins system is far better than the A's. So the Marlins ninth and 12th prospects will be a bit more valuable than the A's ninth and 12th prospects. But that being said, that is a great return. Diekman ranks ninth per fan graphs, per MLB.com, per me. I actually have Diekman in the top 10 as well in that A system, second round pick a few years ago. But the guy can really swing it. He's coming to his own in AAA this year. And that would have been a trade that I would have been happy with for the Marlins. I think that Diekman has a chance to be a pretty solid big league corner outfielder. He's basically ready right now. He's 26 years old. He's hitting 300 in AAA. I'd like to see more power from him given he only has four home runs in those 60 games, but he walks a ton, 433 on base, 50 walks against 60 strikeouts. The larger point is a pretty decent return for a lefty reliever here who I think is not as valuable as Richard Blyer, and I'll explain why. While Chafin's numbers are a little bit better this year, I would say that Blyer's been better over the last two years as Chafin didn't really throw in 2020, only nine innings. This year, he's pitched to a 2.06 ERA in 39 and a third innings. He's punched out 30 
37. That is better than Blyer, no doubt. He's given up very little contact, a .83 whip. He has not walked very many guys either. So he's been really strong in that regard. But Blyer over the last two years has been incredibly consistent. After a 2.63 ERA last season, he has come back this year and pitched to a 2.82 ERA and in 38 and a thirds innings, a .86 whip. The FIP in the low threes with the both years combined. Blyer gets a ton of ground balls. He's reliable, throws strikes, and again, just keeps the ball in the yard. But where I think the two are pretty distinguishable in favor of Richard Blyer is the financials because you look at the Chafin contract. He's owed $2.25 million for the entirety of the season. So the remainder of the contract, probably a little bit under a million dollars. That's perfectly fine for the A's. But next year, he is slated to make $5.25 million. It's actually a mutual option for $5.25 million. So either he's going to opt out, which I doubt he will, unless he wants to hit the open market and feels like he can beat that. 5.25 sounds like a pretty solid deal for him on a one-year deal at 32 years old. The mutual option also includes a $500,000 buyout in 2022, which again, is just not something that you're excited about. It's also laden with incentives, $125,000 for each threshold he reaches, which is 50 games, 55 games, 60 games, and 65 games, which would add up to half a million dollars if he made it to 65 games. That's a lot, but he'll easily be able in a full season to make it to 55 games. That's an extra quarter of a million dollars. So there's some more complexity to his contract and it's also just more expensive. You look at Blyer, he also has control for next year, but it's not a mutual option. It's not that expensive. It is just an arbitration year. Yes, Blyer is two years older than Chafin, maybe actually closer to three years older than Chafin, but they're relievers and it doesn't really matter if you're 32 or 34, in my opinion, if we're looking at a two-year window here for a reliever. The base salary for Blyer is $1.4 million, so the adjusted salary would be almost half that of what we see Andrew Chafin's, a little bit more than half that. And then the 2022 salary, I would expect to be a fraction of $5 million. So you're getting an extra year of control that is way cheaper with Richard Blyer. The performance is not that different. I think it's very feasible to see a middling type of farm system to give up a 10 to 15 range prospect in their top 30, as well as a back end guy in their top 30 as well. It might even be a little bit more than that. And I would be surprised if the Marlins were not able to get something similar to a Chafin type of return. So that sets the bar pretty high for the Marlins. I think that's a really good scenario there to see that deal and to see what the Cubs were able to bring in from the A's. So that was encouraging to say the least. And I would expect Blyer to be gone as much as I love Richard Blyer, which you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that's my guy. But I think you got to cash in on a 34-year-old lefty reliever. But I could also see him being attached to another guy like a Starling Marte or one of those other players to get a bit more of a return. That could really help the Marlins as well. You could go a couple of different ways. And I think that really helps that the Marlins have that flexibility in that. That regard between Blyer, Yimmy Garcia, and then the offensive players that the Marlins will be able to deal, uh, they should be able to get some nice pieces here at this deadline, and it's going to be fun to be able to talk about those. I'm going to talk about Braxton Garrett here because he's a guy that the Marlins could end up packaging to send out 
if there's a team who may be interested in him. It definitely helped that he had a nice start in his last outing and started to show flashes of maybe a little bit of what the Marlins saw in him when they drafted him in the first round several years ago and also showed enough flashes to say, hey, this is a lefty that can slot into the back of my rotation if I'm acquiring him. He is controllable, he's cheap, and he throws strikes. That could be enough to throw on top of a player for the Marlins to maximize a return a little bit as well. But I want to talk about the start against the Padres where Braxton Garrett was able to rack up 10 strikeouts. And that's not really characteristic of Braxton Garrett. But what was interesting about him is that he was much different looked in that outing than we've seen him in the past. Totally repurposed his pitch usage And it actually left me feeling a bit more optimistic that he can reach that back end of the rotation, consistent back end of the rotation type of guy, which again, given where he was drafted is a bit of a disappointment. But I would say for a while here, when I was watching Braxton Garrett, I was unsure that he'd even be a big league starting pitcher that the Marlins could truly, truly rely on. I saw some Dylan Peters in there. There was definitely just not enough swing and miss caliber stuff. The velo wasn't great. And you just felt like he had a race thin margin for error. He still has a very thin margin for error, but he's allowed himself to have a bit more of that margin based on what he did in his last outing. And I'll talk about that now. So basically he is not throwing the four seamer as much. He's still using it to change eye levels to set up other pitches. But the difference in this last outing is he went sinker heavy and he had never really thrown the sinker that much. Instead, basically flip-flops the four-seamer and the sinker. Throws the sinker 25% of the time, the four-seamer only 14% of the time. The difference between the two pitches really is obviously the sinker sinks, it's heavier, and he seems to throw it just about at the same velocity, maybe one mile per hour slower, but it's better to have a pitch that works low in the zone, that you're able to get ground balls on instead of a 90-mile-per-hour four-seamer, which is somewhat of a nightmare. I'd rather have an 89-mile-per-hour sinker that's located well and heavy than a 90 mile per hour four seamer. So he was able to go to that sinker, which was a better baseline pitch. Then he also threw a more even distribution of his entire arsenal. That's what he has to do. We talk about Zach Thompson and how he's a bit of a Swiss army knife in the regard that he will go to the curveball more in one outing. Then he'll go to the changeup more in another outing or the fastball more in another outing or the cutter more in another outing. He gives you a different look every time. I don't know if Braxton Garrett's stuff is quite at Zach Thompson's level and the baseline sinker is not as good as the baseline cutter, but this could be something that works for Braxton Garrett where he's able to give you a bit of a different look every time because he's comfortable throwing the sinker. He's comfortable throwing a curveball. He's comfortable throwing a changeup, a slider, and a four-seamer, and we saw that in that last outing. The percentage distribution here was sinker 25%, curveball 24%, changeup 21%, slider 16%, and four-seamer 14% in those 85 pitches that he threw in that outing. And he was able to get at least one swing and miss on every offering. He picked up at least five called strikes and whiffs on every single offering. And the sinker and curveball led the way with 10 called strike whiffs each. The called strike whiff percentage at 44% probably, I don't know, I haven't, I wasn't able to look at every outing he's had in the big leagues, but I would venture to say that that's the best mark he's had in a major league start. 44% called strike whiff rate, that's spectacular, especially given what he has struggled with in terms of getting swings and misses, picking up called strikes with the lower end quality of his stuff at times. 
This was a very encouraging outing. And yes, he's going to have to have everything working to have these kinds of outings. But the fact that he's comfortable enough to throw all these pitches was a great sign. And for reference, this is the breakdown even after this start. So this start obviously affected the overall percentages, but this is still the overall percentage of his pitch usage overall this year. Fastball, this is the four-seamer. He's thrown it 35% of the time. The slider, he's thrown 26% of the time. The curveball, 18%. Sinker, 10%. Changeup, 10%. So a much different distribution in this last outing, and that's the first time I've really seen that from him. Again, I'm not going to say that he's going to start racking up 10 strikeouts uh, very frequently. He might not do it again for a while, but this is not a fluke. It wasn't just him having a super lucky outing. It was him actually making a tangible adjustment and realizing what his strengths and weaknesses are, and I'm very interested to see how he plays off of that sinker moving forward. What I do like is he was still comfortable going to the four-seamer to change that eye level, to set up the change-up, and also was different lefties versus righties, going to the sinker and change-up more against the righties, and also just using that slider against lefties and the curveball as well. The aspect that's a little bit similar to Zach Thompson is that that vertical breaking curveball gives him another look for righties as well, where he can go to the changeup, which fades away, but also can go to the vertical breaking curveball and give you a different look the second time through the order or the third time through the order, which is really important for a pitcher like Braxton Garrett, who's not going to be able to blow it by you. So definitely some good news there. Maybe a team will be interested in Braxton Garrett and attaching him there if you're the Marlins, but I would say that he is starting to show flashes of being a viable big league arm. But between having him, Zach Thompson, Cody Petit, you got to wonder if there's some teams out there that may be interested in one of those guys as just a really safe bet to be a solid back end of the rotation type of starter. That's got to have some value there with the control that comes along as well. I'm going to talk about the Marlins games ahead and then that Baseball America top 30 list for the fish and also the fact that J.J. Bleday drops out of their top 100. Pretty crazy. So want to talk about that as well. That's all coming up in just a moment. Reminder that this episode is brought to you in part by Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season's in full swing and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs including MLB, NBA, NHL, and all of your UFC and MMA action. Before next pitch, Head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all of the great sporting news. Sign up for bonuses and contest information. All you have to do is use the promo code Locked On. That's one word, Locked On, and you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your initial deposit. That's 50% free money. Deposit 100 bucks, you get an extra 50 on top of it just by using the promo code Locked On at BetOnline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Also brought to you by Built Bar who has so many delicious flavors. You can go with coconut, cherry barcia, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, cookies and cream, or German chocolate. My favorite flavor is the mint brownie, but they also have grasshopper cookie and raspberry as limited time flavors. Grasshopper cookie does not have grasshoppers, but it is based off of basically the thin mints. It's got that minty type of flavor, but the best part is it doesn't have the unhealthy aspects that the Girl Scout cookies do, where they're 17 to 18 grams of protein, 130 to 180 calories, only four to five grams of sugar, only four to five grams of net carbs, all amazing flavors, all covered in chocolate, all tasty, all healthy, all great for a keto diet. And if you go to built.com and use the promo code 
LOCKED15. That's LOCKED15. You'll get 15% off your next order. That's Built.com, promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your next order. Go to Built.com, promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your next order. Also, did you know that Built Bar is the official protein bar of the U.S. track and field team? That's Built.com, promo code LOCKED15. So let's talk about these games ahead for the fish. They've got Sandy Alcantara going later today in Baltimore against Spencer Watkins, who I have no idea anything about him, but he's thrown pretty well in two outings, and I'm sure he'll do a good job against the Marlins lineup, which should be a fun one to look at. I'm really excited for Ethan to put out that lineup every day. I I feel bad for Ethan because Ethan Butkowski does an unbelievable job on the Marlins beat. Kid's fresh out of college and is legitimately living the beat writer life, essentially, and doing a amazing job at being professional through all of that for fish stripes and he i guess somehow decided to take on the gig of being the guy who tweets out the marlins lineup before everybody else and the lineup i would say 75 percent of the time makes me want to put my head through a wall either because earlier in the season the marlins would go back to back off days on all of their best players we would see aguilar Marte get an off day in an important game before the team had a scheduled off day anyways, and people would freak out about that. Now we're back to the Isan Diaz, Lewis Brinson type lineups that people are going to freak out about. And of course, Magnara Sierra. Sometimes you get all of them in one lineup if you're really lucky. And the second that poor kid hits send, he just gets a barrage of tweets like, what the hell is this lineup? This is the worst lineup I've ever seen, et cetera, et cetera. My larger point is that it's only going to get worse. Uh, The lineup's only going to get uglier, but that's okay because I think the Marlins are going to get some really helpful pieces here. And guess what? You know, I will be very, very excited and have a great time if the Marlins trade away. And I'm not going to be happy that they trade Marte away or whoever else may go, but I will be excited if there's a Joey Bart in the lineup or if there's a Heliot Ramos, who I don't think is going to be dealt. But any of those guys that are fun upcoming prospects that given this season is somewhat lost unless the Marlins go on a miracle run here, which I doubt is going to happen because they're going to cash in a little bit. But given that the season's a bit lost, I'm all here for just watching prospects come up, perform. I want to see Eddie Cabrera perform. I want to see some of the guys that the Marlins go and acquire that are hopefully big league ready or close to it come up and perform. And we'll see if any prospects make their way through. So it should be interesting in the second half of the season. I know people are tired of that. And I I understand I'm tired of this, like, oh, let's look forward to prospects hopefully panning out. I totally understand that. But on the flip side, this is a position that we haven't really seen the Marlins in before, given that the Marlins have already a competitive core of starting pitching. I know that all of them are hurt right now. Uh, Sandy Alcantara is back today off of the bereavement list. And my thoughts and prayers are with him and his family. But when you look at the rest of the rotation, it's all guys really banged up right now. Sixto Sanchez will be back at the beginning of next year. Pablo Lopez, the Marlins aren't going to rush back. And he'll be either back by the end of this year or by next season, no problem. And then everybody else, Trevor Rogers is on the IL currently, but I think he's just fine. And you got Poteet, Zach Thompson, several other players that all could could slot into the rotation as well as Eddie Cabrera and Max Meyer and even Jake Eater, who looks like he's not that far off. So the Marlins have a ton of pitching and that's even leaving out several guys like Nick Neidert and some other options that have looked decent so far in AAA and have looked decent in some cameos in the big leagues. The Marlins have a ton of depth. They have a competitive amount of starting pitching and it's really just the offensive side of things. So this is a weird position where half of the Marlins team 
some of the hardest things to, to solve. I think every team in baseball is in the market for a starting pitcher, except for the Marlins. So there is some advantage to that, and I think it's a lot easier to find bats. You could find one or two in free agency if you're willing to spend, and you can also cash in on some of those arms to get bats. Arms are always going to be more valuable, especially in today's game. So I think this is a different position. We're not just waiting on prospects with no hope in sight. I think you have a large core of your team good to go. It's almost like the Dolphins, right? The Dolphins have a phenomenal defense that you think could compete probably right away. The offense, uh, their quarterback struggled. Tua was not the guy that you, you were hoping for right away, but there's still a lot of optimism around him. And they just didn't have weapons on offense and they dealt with some injuries. And that's a lot easier, right? It's a lot easier to address wide receiver. It's a lot easier to address running back, tight end, those spots than it is to address your defensive line or your corners or whatever it may be. So I like it to be similar to that, where the Marlins have the hard part figured out with the pitchers. I will hope that they can figure out the offensive side of things. I think they've realized they can't cultivate that talent that well, and you can either go get a more advanced prospect that you can't screw up, for lack of a better word, or just a big league guy already, or a little bit of both. And I know I just totally digressed, but I had to get into that because that was something I wanted to talk about. And somehow Spencer Watkins (laughs) sent me down that rabbit hole. But the Marlins are going to face Watkins. We'll see how Alcantara pitches today. And again, it's going to be a very emotional outing for him, as Craig Mish has said. And I hope that he is able to just use this as something that's cathartic for him. And there's much more important things than baseball, but sometimes that's the only place you want to be. I can speak on behalf of that for myself. When I lost my father, the only place I wanted to go was the baseball field and I wasn't playing anymore. So I went to a ball game. So hopefully that's how it is for Sandy. I hope he's not forcing himself to pitch. I hope that it's more of this just comfortable outlet for him. And uh, I'll be watching and rooting a little bit extra for him today and his family, but also looking ahead too. So it's probably going to be a Jordan Holloway start the next day in this two game set with Baltimore against what should be Jorge Lopez. Again, I don't know what the Marlins end up doing. I think it's Jordan Holloway who is scheduled or tentatively scheduled or has been mentioned, but we don't know what they're going to do. I feel like it just switches up at the last minute every single time anyways. But then also going into the Yankee series, it's going to be a bit of a mystery on who the Marlins will throw out there. I'm assuming we'll see Zach Thompson in one of those outings. And on the Yankee side, the Marlins should see Jameson Tyone, who is atrocious away from home. But... I would assume that Marlins Park could be an exception to that road struggle given how much of a pitcher's park it is. Then the Marlins should also get former Marlin Domingo Herman, who I would love to just see get teed off on because he's just not a great dude uh, given some of his history. And then the Marlins will probably get Jordan Montgomery in the final game of that three-game set. I'm expecting a ton of Yankee fans, a lot of fun environment there with Plenty, plenty of seats filled, even if it's all Yankees fans. I'm just happy to see butts in the seats in Marlins Park, but let's try to get some Marlins fans out there. I'm not going to be able to make it. I don't think I'm going to be out in Chicago for the national card show for JustBaseball.com, but I will be watching and I wish I could go to that Yankee series because even when both teams are not great, it's always fun to see all the snowbirds being super obnoxious about the Yankees. Usually the Marlins will pull off one game. Maybe they can squeeze out two. You never know, but the environment is always fun. I want to talk about now to wrap up here is this Baseball America top 30 list for the fish. And all I'm not going to go through all 30 players, but I'll mention the significance. And I thought it was pretty crazy to start off to see Sixto Sanchez at number one because personally, 
I think you've got to start looking at Sixto Sanchez as somebody that you're fading a little bit. I still think he's going to be a fine starting pitcher in the big leagues in a solid middle of the rotation type arm who's going to have some injury risks and is going to have some questions around his work ethic. So that's somebody that I'm probably not putting ahead of the Max Myers, the Edward Cabreras at this point. Uh, but I'm still putting him in the top 50, top 60. But in my opinion, Edward Cabrera is a top 30, top 40 prospect in baseball. Spoiler alert on just baseball's top 100. That is coming out very soon. It has taken a long time to get all these write-ups done on each prospect. But I can promise you, we will have Eddie Cabrera pretty darn high. And it's not just me. I have the rest of the staff hold me a little bit accountable in case I'm just a little bit too exposed to certain Marlins prospects more than others. But everybody on the staff loves Eddie Cabrera as a top 30, top 35 guy in the minor leagues. And how couldn't you? He throws 100 miles an hour. He commands it. He's got a great changeup. Breaking ball looks good. How is that guy fifth? How is that guy behind Jesus Sanchez? And that's kind of the big thing I want to talk about here because going through the top 10 real quick, it's Sixto Sanchez, Max Meyer, Jesus Sanchez, Jake Eater, Edward Cabrera, Khalil Watson, if he signs, Yuri Perez, Joe Mack, Nassim Nunez, and JJ Bleday. Yeah, Bleday at 10, which is pretty crazy. I'm going to get there in a second, but I want to start with Jesus Sanchez. I have been very impressed with what he has done, obviously, in AAA. Anybody in the world would be impressed with what he did in AAA. And I thought he's shown some great flashes so far in the big leagues. He's had a better approach. He's always going to be uber aggressive, but has been better, more patient, and has really driven the ball to all fields and has adjusted to the way that pitchers have attacked him. I think that Jesus Sanchez is a long-term option for the Marlins in the corner outfield, but I don't know how much of that ridiculous raw power he's going to tap into. We're going to have to see that. He still hits a ton of ground balls. He still expands the zone a little bit, so we'll have to see. He's not the best defender in the world, so there's still plenty of upside there. I think he has raised his floor a little bit, too, as a guy that you're starting to see, okay, that guy is starting to show more of a feel to hit, and he's walking a bit more. That's all good stuff. But I don't know if I'm putting that guy ahead of Edward Cabrera. How are you putting Jesus Sanchez, a 23-year-old corner outfielder, with some of the questions that I mentioned ahead of Edward Cabrera, who, in my opinion, doesn't have that many questions aside from a minor injury history, and that's about it. What, what else is there to be concerned about with Edward Cabrera? The command has come a long way. The stuff plays. The track record's there. The numbers are there. I don't really know what the issue is in that regard. Jake Eater... Also phenomenal. I like him right around that four to five range, and he has been really fun to watch this year, but just a bit surprising there to see Jesus Sanchez bumped all the way up to three, and then you have somebody like J.J. Bleday dropped all the way down to 10. I feel like that's really, really knee-jerk because, look, obviously, Bleday struggling is a concern, but he has just made some adjustments to his swing, to his setup, and I want to see those play out, see how it all goes. And at the end of the day, he's still walking 14% of the time. He's only striking out 21% of the time. So it's been a season from hell for him, really, given that he has not been near the lofty expectations set on him. But even in that season from hell, he's got an 88 WRC plus, so not good, 12% below average. But it's not like he's striking out 40% of the time, like he's just some atrocious, atrocious hitter that has not looked anything like we have seen. I haven't seen anything too alarming in terms of the batted ball data, but you just wonder with the massive drop, is there something that Baseball America has seen or information that they have that nobody else is really on? Is the 
exit velos really low on him or are the exit velos really low on him? Like, what's the deal right now for him to be faded so low? I think the 14% walk rate's encouraging. I think the fact that he's not striking out a ton is encouraging. His BABIP is incredibly low. Even then, even if it was a little bit more normalized, he's still hitting in the low 200s. Right now, hitting 198. So there's no doubt concern, and there's no doubt a reason to drop this guy. But also, it's been 71 games. That is not that many games. 257 at-bats. And we're going to say, okay, this guy that I thought was a top 30, top 40 prospect, 257 at-bats later, he is not even near there. I just think that's really extreme. Maybe by the end of the year, you could pull him out of the list. And I'm not trying to be this huge advocate saying he's still a superstar in the making, whatever. I still think the sky's the limit and I think he can figure it out and he's too professional and advanced of a hitter to not figure it out but in in the occasion that maybe he doesn't then I'll start to maybe drop him a little bit but it's been 71 games with a lost season in 2020 and we're going to just say hey you know he didn't come out swinging right away in double a and for that reason I'm gonna drop him out of the top 100 that's a bit extreme. Also to drop him all the way to number 10 on the Marlins top prospect list behind Nassim Nunez. And I know Nunez has been swinging it. I know he's been swinging it, but I want to just say the defense out there is really bad. Really, really bad. I've watched some games. I've been watching my buddy Zach Cohn play, who's been swinging it really well, by the way. Couple home runs last week, getting that OPS up, starting to settle in. Uh, really excited for Zach, and he plays all over the diamonds. So if he's able to hit half decent, which I know he's capable of, all American in high school, his defensive versatility can make him a nice little utility piece. He's a plus runner as well. That aside, I've been watching the games. There are so many balls that should be clean plays that end up being hits or whatever it may be. And when you're a plus-plus runner like Naz Nunez, that's obviously going to help. I mean, take a look at the BABIP on him. And I'm not trying to tear him down. He's a gold glove caliber defender, which is also going to really help him. But I'm going to need to see him hit an A ball in high A to really be impressed and encouraged by him. I don't really believe in the bat. And again, we're, we're just playing the results here if we're Baseball America, right? Because that's what that tells me. If you're going Jesus Sanchez up to three, you're going Bode down to 10, Nazem Nunez up to nine, you're just looking at the results. And I know results at the end of the day are the most important thing, but as we know, there's so much more that goes into prospecting and prospect rankings. Yuri Perez at number seven is awesome, and I'm really excited to see him start to get that helium, another guy that's going to get serious consideration for just baseball's top 100 list. But then again, you put him at number seven, and then this is one of the funny things to, for scouting for me, because this has always been something that I see fan graphs do a lot. They put ceilings on kids when you're there's just no way you know what this kid is capable of in terms of what he could turn into, especially Yuri Perez. He's 18 years old. He's 6'8". His mechanics and his release are so smooth and repeatable. His command has been really impressive. The fastball has reached upper 90s. The slider has shown above average to plus. The changeup has flashed plus. That's already a three-pitch mix that he commands pretty well. And again, he's 6'8 and effortlessly hits the upper 90s and repeats his mechanics like a guy you would not expect him to be able to do given that he has the height of a power forward. Yet, Baseball America closes out their write-up with him and says, there are plenty of steps to go before Perez reaches his ceiling, which is totally true given the fact that he is just becoming, he just became a legal adult. But he could settle in as a a mid-rotation starter if he reaches his peak. What? What does that even mean? You are saying that at the best case scenario, this 6'8 
righty that has effortless upper 90s velo and three pitches for a strike that all flash above average to plus is at best a middle of the rotation starter. I'm not saying he's for sure going to be a superstar, but how could you put that ceiling on somebody like Yuri Perez? That's nuts to me. I, I think there's no ceiling on him and there's a wide range of outcomes, no doubt about it. But how could you just be like, yeah, if in best case scenario, this 18-year-old who defies a lot of physical attributes that we've ever really seen is middle of the rotation type of guy. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. That's just nuts to me. But anyways, some of the other things that I liked in this list, I love to see Zach McCambly get that helium up to 14. Uh, Peyton Burdick, surprising to see him down at 16. Monte Harrison a bit high at 17. But also Cody Petit getting that jump up to 22. Love to see that. Obviously, Baseball America liked what they saw from him. Kyle Nicholas a bit low at 23, in my opinion. Salas a bit low at 25. I guess they want to see a bit more from Yiddy Cap at 26. Morissette, the new shortstop or infielder utility type guy at 27. McCants at 28. Victor Mesa Jr. at 29, I think, is a bit low as well. And then Connor Scott at 30. I'm not a huge Connor Scott believer. So that one, not too surprising for me. That's probably where I'd have him, honestly, at this point as well. Banfield falls out of the top 30 for the fish. Understandable. He has not really been hitting at all. And uh, that's why the Joe Mack pickup is big for the Marlins. Interesting to see Mack at eight. There's definitely some questions around the bat. I think the swing is definitely further along than Will Banfield, which I said after the draft, but still some swing and miss concerns there. So we'll see how he's able to continue to develop, but really excited about what Joe Mack can bring to the table. Dax Fulton at 13. That's a guy that I think the Marlins could end up trading, especially if a team is not really interested in Braxton Garrett. I would be open to moving Dax Fulton. That's a guy that I think the Marlins could package. Griffin Conan gets the bump up to 19. Jumps over Gerard Encarnacion, which I thought was interesting as well. So plenty to see there in that Marlins top 30 for Baseball America. I would say that this is one of the more strange top 30s I've seen uh, for the Marlins in a while. Generally, I'm, I'm okay with the subjectivity of it because it's all pretty, uh, you know, it's just all up for interpretation. But this one was was interesting. Uh, Khalil Watson at six is fun as well. And that's going to be interesting. And I think the Marlins, they've done just about all they can to get Khalil Watson. And the more I think about it, you know, it would be really, really tough to not sign him. The Red Sox They just ended up falling through with Judd Fabian and not being able to sign him as his price tag was too high. I just wonder, I understand that the Marlins, uh, they felt confident that 4.5 or whatever it was, maybe they thought they'd have a little bit more money, but I think $4.5 million is a pretty ridiculous amount of money for a high school shortstop that fell to 16. It's a little bit lower than his price tag, but people weren't meeting that price tag earlier in the draft. So why are you expecting the Marlins to meet that price tag at 16? They got close to it and said, hey, we really like you. We're going to offer you more than just about anybody else is going to offer. But I also understand the fact that the Marlins felt like, hey, we are really lucky to have Khalil Watson fall to us at 16. That being said, Baseball, especially the MLB draft, as we have seen, we have seen, and the Marlins have done a great job of drafting, but just in general, the MLB draft is incredibly unpredictable, and there's no such thing as a sure thing, whether you have the first pick or the 16th pick or whoever falls to you at whatever selection. So for the Marlins, I think they looked at it and said, hey, if we go and put a majority of our pool, if we put $5 million into Khalil Watson, we are really limiting the amount of talent that we're able to get in other areas. And that's the thing with the MLB draft is that you need to spread your risk. And this is something that I've thought about more and more, and I understand it. 
Maybe the Marlins are in the right here to only offer $4.5 million. I say only. That is a really darn good offer and a record-setting overslot for the 16th selection. And the Marlins look at it like, hey, if Watson doesn't pan out, we're going to kick ourselves if that was what impeded us from getting Joe Mack. If they really like McCants, if that's what impeded them from getting McCants or impeded them from getting Morissette, you got to spread that risk out over four or five picks. We've seen drafts where, I mean, even Peyton Burdick ends up being the best player from that class, right? Better than a lot of the guys drafted ahead of him. You got to spread that risk. And I understand not wanting to put almost all of your budget, all of your bonus pool budget into one guy in Khalil Watson. I also will say I saw a clip of that interview of them asking him, I forget who the reporter was, but asked him, hey, what is it like to, you know, be potentially playing in an organization run by Derek Jeter as a CEO? And he was like, it's cool, but I hope he gives me my money. Give me my money. And I was like, geez, like that's not really what you would expect there. So it's going to be interesting here. It's going to be interesting. And he fell, as I said, a little bit because people were concerned about the attitude around him. And uh, that little snippet there uh, seemed to reinforce maybe that narrative, which I thought was a bit of a reach. But I mean, I'm not going to make a large leaping assumption based on one clip, but that was not the best clip to be introduced to Khalil Watson on. So I'm going to go do some more digging on some other interviews and see some more of Khalil Watson, but it's going to be close. It's going to be really close. I think the Marlins ultimately can get it done, but I wouldn't be shocked if it doesn't get done. Now I kind of understand that 65% chance that Mish threw out there. But anyways, I think the Marlins survive if they don't sign Watson. You get an extra first round pick next year, and I'm okay with not putting $5 million forth to one player, especially since he's a high schooler. So it wouldn't be the end of the world, and the Marlins would then be able to get pretty creative in next year's draft as well. I'd be much happier to get Khalil Watson here with the offensive profile that he has and how special he can be, but it's not the end of the world if they have two first round picks in next year's class because there's a lot of really good and exciting talent coming up in next year's class as well. And it looks like the Marlins may have an earlier first round pick than we initially thought, as I'm expecting it to probably be a pretty rough second half. As always, thank you for listening. Looking forward to this Orioles series and then the Yankees come to town. I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.